0: Chapter 4 of The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton This LibriVox recording is in the Public Domain Recording by Anthony August. The Tale of a Detective Gabriel Syme was not merely a detective who pretended to be a poet He was really a poet who had become a detective Nor was his hatred of anarchy hypocritical he was one of those who had driven early in life into too conservative an attitude by the bewildering folly of most revolutionists. He had not attained it by any tame tradition. His respectability was spontaneous and sudden, a rebellion against rebellion. He came of a family of cranks in which all the oldest people had all the newest notions. One of his uncles always walked about without a hat, and another had made an unsuccessful attempt to walk about with a hat and nothing else. His father cultivated art and self-realisation. His mother went in for simplicity and hygiene. Hence the child, during his tender years, was wholly unacquainted with any drink between the extremes of absinthe and cocoa, of both of which he had a healthy dislike. The more his mother preached to more than Puritan abstinence, the more did his father expand into a more than pagan latitude, and by the time the former had come to enforcing vegetarianism, the latter had pretty well reached the point of defending cannibalism. Being surrounded with every conceivable kind of revolt from infancy, Gabriel had to revolt into something, so he revolted into the only thing left, sanity. But there was just enough in him of the blood of these fanatics to make even his protest for common sense a little too fierce to be sensible. His hatred of modern lawlessness had been crowned also by an accident. It happened that he was walking in a side street at the instant of a dynamite outrage. He had been blind and deaf for a moment and then seen the smoke clearing, the broken windows and the bleeding faces After that he went about as usual, quiet, courteous, rather gentle, but there was a spot on his mind that was not sane. He did not regard anarchists, as most of us do, as a handful of morbid men combining ignorance with intellectualism. He regarded them as a huge and pitiless peril, like a Chinese invasion. He poured perpetually into newspapers and their waste-paper baskets, A torrent of tales, verses, and violent articles, warning men of this deluge of barbaric denial. But he seemed to be getting no nearer his enemy, and what was worse, no nearer a living. As he paced the Thames embankment, bitterly biting a cheap cigar and brooding on the advance of anarchy, there was no anarchist with a bomb in his pocket so savage or so solitary as he. Indeed, he always felt the government stood alone and desperate with its back to the wall. He was too quixotic to have cared for it otherwise. He walked on the embankment once under a dark red sunset. The red river reflected the red sky, and they both reflected his anger. The sky indeed was so swarthy, and the light on the river relatively so lurid, that the water almost seemed a fiercer flame than the sunset it mirrored. It looked like a stream of literal fire winding under the vast caverns of a subterranean country. Syme was shabby in those days. He wore an old-fashioned black chimney-pot hat. He was wrapped in a yet more old-fashioned cloak, black and ragged, and the combination gave him the look of the early villains in Dickens and Bulwer-Lytton, also his yellow beard and hair were more unkempt and leonine than when they appeared long afterwards, cut and pointed, on the lawns of Saffron Park. A long lean black cigar, bought in Soho for tuppence, stood out from between his tightened teeth, and altogether he looked a very satisfactory specimen of the anarchists upon whom he had vowed holy war. Perhaps this was why a policeman on the embankment spoke to him and said, "'Good evening!' Syme, at a crisis of his morbid fears for humanity, seemed stung by the mere stolidity of the automatic official, a mere bulk of blue in the twilight. "'A good evening, is it?' he said sharply. "'You fellows would call the end of the world a good evening. Look at that bloody red sun and that bloody river!' i tell you that if that were literally human blood spilt and shining you would still be standing here as solid as ever looking out for some poor harmless tramp whom you could move on you policemen are cruel to the poor but i could forgive you even your cruelty if it were not for your calm if i were calm replied the policeman it is the calm of organised resistance eh said Syme, staring The soldier must be calm in the thick of the battle, pursued the policeman. The composure of an army is the anger of a nation. Good God, the board schools, said Syme. Is this undenominational education? No, said the policeman sadly. I never had any of those advantages. The board schools came after my time. What education I had was very rough and old-fashioned, I'm afraid. "'Where did you have it?' asked Sime, wondering. "'Oh, at Harrow,' said the policeman. "'The class sympathies, which, false as they are, "'are the truest things in so many men, "'broke out of Sime before he could control them. "'But, good Lord, man,' he said, "'you oughtn't to be a policeman.' "'The policeman sighed and shook his head. "'I know,' he said solemnly, "'I know I'm not worthy.' "'But why did you join the police?' asked Sime with rude curiosity. "'For much the same reason that you abused the police,' replied the other. "'I found that there was a special opening in the service "'for those whose fears for humanity were concerned rather with "'the aberrations of the scientific intellect than with the normal and excusable, "'though excessive outbreaks of the human will. "'I trust I make myself clear.' "'If you mean that you make your opinion clear,' said Syme, "'I suppose you do, but as for making yourself clear, "'it is the last thing you do. "'How comes a man like you to be talking philosophy "'in a blue helmet on the Thames embankment?' "'You've evidently not heard of the latest development "'in our police system,' replied the other. "'I'm not surprised at it. "'We're keeping it rather dark from the educated class "'because that class contains most of our enemies.' "'But you seem to be exactly in the right frame of mind. "'I think you might almost join us.' "'Join you in what?' asked Syme. "'I will tell you,' said the policeman slowly. "'This is the situation. "'The head of one of our departments, "'one of the most celebrated detectives in Europe, "'has long been of opinion "'that a purely intellectual conspiracy "'would soon threaten the very existence of civilisation.' He is certain that the scientific and artistic worlds are silently bound in a crusade against the family and the state. He has therefore formed a special corps of policemen, policemen who are also philosophers. It is their business to watch the beginnings of this conspiracy, not merely in a criminal, but in a controversial sense. I am a democrat myself. "'and I'm fully aware of the value of the ordinary man "'in matters of ordinary valour or virtue, "'but it would obviously be undesirable "'to employ the common policeman in an investigation "'which is also a heresy hunt.' "'Syme's eyes were bright with a sympathetic curiosity. "'What do you do then?' he said. "'The work of the philosophical policeman,' replied the man in blue, is at once bolder and more subtle than that of The Ordinary Detective. The Ordinary Detective goes to pothouses to arrest thieves. We go to artistic tea parties to detect pessimists. The Ordinary Detective discovers from a ledger or a diary that a crime has been committed. We discover from a book of sonnets that a crime will be committed. We have to trace the origin of those dreadful thoughts that drive men on at last to intellectual fanaticism and intellectual crime. We were only just in time to prevent the assassination at Hartlepool, and that was entirely due to the fact that our Mr Wilkes, a smart young fellow, thoroughly understood a triolet. Do you mean, asked Syme, that there is really as much connection between crime and the modern intellect as all that? "'You're not sufficiently democratic,' answered the policeman. "'But you were right when you said just now "'that our ordinary treatment of the poor criminal "'was a pretty brutal business.' "'I tell you, I'm sometimes sick of my trade "'when I see how perpetually it means merely a war "'upon the ignorant and the desperate. "'But this new movement of ours is a very different affair. "'We deny the snobbish English assumption "'that the uneducated are the dangerous criminals.' We remember the Roman emperors. We remember the great poisoning princes of the Renaissance. We say that the dangerous criminal is the educated criminal. We say that the most dangerous criminal now is the entirely lawless modern philosopher. Compared to him, burglars and bigamists are essentially moral men. My heart goes out to them. They accept the essential ideal of man. They merely seek it wrongly. Thieves respect property. They merely wish the property to become their property, that they may more perfectly respect it. But philosophers dislike property as property. They wish to destroy the very idea of personal possession. Bigamists respect marriage, or they would not go through the highly ceremonial and even ritualistic formality of bigamy. But philosophers despise marriage as marriage. Murderers respect human life. They merely wish to attain a greater fullness of human life in themselves by the sacrifice of what seems to them to be lesser lives. But philosophers hate life itself, their own as much as other people's. Syme struck his hands together. How true that is, he cried. I have felt it from my boyhood, but never could state the verbal antithesis. The common criminal is a bad man, but at least he is, as it were, a conditional good man. He says that if only a certain obstacle be removed, say a wealthy uncle, he is then prepared to accept the universe and to praise God. He is a reformer, but not an anarchist. He wishes to cleanse the edifice, but not to destroy it. But the evil philosopher is not trying to alter things, but to annihilate them. Yes, the modern world has retained all those parts of police work which are really oppressive and ignominious. The hurrying of the poor, the spying upon the unfortunate. It has given up its more dignified work, the punishment of powerful traitors in the state and powerful heresiarchs in the church. The moderns say we must not punish heretics. My only doubt is whether we have a right to punish anybody else. This is absurd cried the policeman, clasping his hands with an excitement uncommon in persons of his figure and costume. "'But it is intolerable. I don't know what you're doing, but you're wasting your life. You must, you shall join our special army against anarchy. Their armies are on our frontiers. Their bolt is ready to fall. A moment more and you may lose the glory of working with us, perhaps the glory of dying with the last heroes of the world.' "'It is a chance not to be missed, certainly,' assented Syme, "'But still I do not quite understand. "'I know as well as anybody that the modern world "'is full of lawless little men and mad little movements. "'But beastly as they are, "'they generally have the one merit of disagreeing with each other. "'How can you talk of their leading one army or hurling one bolt? "'What is this anarchy?' "'Do not confuse it,' replied the constable with those chance dynamite outbreaks from Russia or from Ireland, which are really the outbreaks of oppressed, if mistaken, men. This is a vast philosophic movement, consisting of an outer and an inner ring. You might even call the outer ring the laity, and the inner ring the priesthood. I prefer to call the outer ring the innocent section, the inner ring the supremely guilty section. The outer ring, the main mass of their supporters, Are merely anarchists, that is, men who believe that rules and formulas have destroyed human happiness. They believe that all the evil results of human crime are the results of the system that has called it crime. They do not believe that the crime creates the punishment. They believe that the punishment has created the crime. They believe that if a man seduced seven women, he would naturally walk away as blameless as the flowers of spring. They believe that if a man picked a pocket, he would naturally feel exquisitely good. These I call the innocent section. Oh, said Syme. Naturally, therefore, these people talk about a happy time coming, the paradise of the future, mankind freed from the bondage of vice and the bondage of virtue and so on. And so also the men of the inner circle speak the sacred priesthood they also speak to applauding crowds of the happiness of the future and of mankind freed at last but in their mouths and the policeman lowered his voice in their mouths these happy phrases have a horrible meaning they are under no illusions they are too intellectual to think that man upon this earth can ever be quite free of original sin and the struggle and they mean death When they say that mankind shall be free at last, they mean that mankind shall commit suicide. When they talk of a paradise without right or wrong, they mean the grave. They have but two objects to destroy first humanity and then themselves. That is why they throw bombs instead of firing pistols. The innocent rank and file are disappointed because the bomb has not killed the king but the high priesthood are happy because it has killed somebody. "'How can I join you?' asked Sime, with a sort of passion. "'I know for a fact that there is a vacancy at the moment,' said the policeman, "'as I have the honour to be somewhat in the confidence of the chief of whom I have spoken. "'You should really come and see him, or rather I should not say see him, "'nobody ever sees him, but you can talk to him if you like.' "'Telephone?' inquired sime with interest no said the policeman placidly he has a fancy for always sitting in a pitch dark room he says it makes his thoughts brighter do come along somewhat dazed and considerably excited sime allowed himself to be led to a side door in the long row of buildings of scotland yard almost before he knew what he was doing He had been passed through the hands of about four intermediate officials and was suddenly shown into a room, the abrupt blackness of which startled him like a blaze of light. It was not the ordinary darkness in which forms can be faintly traced. It was like going suddenly stone blind. "'Are you the new recruit?' asked a heavy voice. And in some strange way, though there was not the shadow of a shape in the gloom, sime knew two things first that it came from a man of massive stature and second that the man had his back to him are you the new recruit said the invisible chief who seemed to have heard all about it all right you're engaged sime quite swept off his feet made a feeble fight against this irrevocable phrase i really have no experience he began no one has any experience said the other of the battle of armageddon but i'm really unfit you're willing that's enough said the unknown well really said sime i don't know any profession of which mere willingness is a final test i do said the other martyrs i'm condemning you to death good day Thus it was that when Gabriel Syme came out again into the crimson light of evening in his shabby black hat and shabby lawless cloak he came out a member of the new detective corps for the frustration of the great conspiracy. Acting under the advice of his friend the policeman who was professionally inclined to neatness he trimmed his hair and beard bought a good hat "'clad himself in an exquisite summer suit of light blue-gray "'with a pale yellow flower in the buttonhole "'and, in short, became that elegant and rather insupportable person "'whom Gregory had first encountered in the little garden of Saffron Park. "'Before he finally left the police premises, "'his friend provided him with a small blue card "'on which was written The Last Crusade, "'and a number.' the sign of his official authority. He put this carefully in his upper waistcoat pocket, lit a cigarette, and went forth to track and fight the enemy in all the drawing-rooms of London. Where his adventure ultimately led him, we have already seen. At about half-past one on a February night, he found himself steaming in a small tug up the Silent Thames, armed with sword-stick and revolver, the duly elected Thursday of the Central Council of Anarchists. When Symes stepped out onto the steam tug, he had a singular sensation of stepping out into something entirely new, not merely into the landscape of a new land, but even into the landscape of a new planet. This was mainly due to the insane yet solid decision of that evening, though partly also to an entire change in the weather and the sky, since he entered the little tavern some two hours before. Every trace of the passionate plumage of the cloudy sunset had been swept away, and a naked moon stood in a naked sky. The moon was so strong and full, that, by a paradox often to be noticed, it seemed like a weaker sun. It gave not the sense of bright moonshine, but rather of a dead daylight. Over the whole landscape lay a luminous and unnatural discoloration, as of that disastrous twilight which Milton spoke of as shed by the sun in eclipse, so that Syme fell easily into his first thought that he was actually on some other and emptier planet which circled round some sadder star but the more he felt this glittering desolation in the moonlit land, the more his own chivalric folly glowed in the night like a great fire. Even the common things he carried with him, the food and the brandy and the loaded pistol, took on exactly that concrete and material poetry which a child feels when he takes a gun upon a journey or a bun with him to bed. The sword stick and the brandy flask though in themselves only the tools of morbid conspirators became the expressions of his own more healthy romance. The sword stick became almost the sword of chivalry and the brandy the wine of the stirrup cup, for even the most dehumanised modern fantasies depend on some older and simpler figure. The adventurers may be mad, but the adventurer must be sane. The dragon without St. George would not even be grotesque, so this inhuman landscape was only imaginative by the presence of a man really human. To Syme's exaggerative mind, the bright, bleak houses and terraces by the Thames looked as empty as the mountains of the moon. But even the moon is only poetical because there is a man in the moon. The tug was worked by two men, And with much toil went comparatively slowly the clear moon that had lit up chiswick had gone down by the time that they passed battersea and when they came under the enormous bulk of westminster day had already begun to break it broke like the splitting of great bars of lead showing bars of silver and these had brightened like white fire when the tug changing its onward course turned inward to a large landing stage rather beyond Charing Cross. The great stones of the embankment seemed equally dark and gigantic as Syme looked up at them. They were big and black against the huge white dawn. They made him feel that he was landing on the colossal steps of some Egyptian palace, and indeed the thing suited his mood, for he was, in his own mind, mounting to attack the solid thrones of horrible and heathen kings he leapt out of the boat onto one slimy step and stood a dark and slender figure amid the enormous masonry the two men in the tug put her off again and turned upstream they had never spoken a word end of chapter four